Hello and welcome to the Lazy Book Club podcast, the book club for those who don't want to read or leave the house. My name is Matt Gonzalez. Well, virtual aberrant concert, it's David Cox. <laughs> what? Uh, and I'm Josh Matheson. And this week we are looking at chapter four of the 39 Steps. That's right. Which is the adventure of... Tintin? No, it wasn't. There. Good start. <laughs> Strong start until Tintin. Ah, oh, this is why oh, I should look at the title before we record. Well, no, is, no, I love it. There's, there's no canon to it. Yeah. Like, it's not like, oh, yeah, so he just he just escaped in the car. So it's, oh, the car breaks down and then it, it, it no introduces sense. a whole other The game. adventure of was great. What you're looking for for the, the end adventure. there was, are you going to do it? Are you going to guess? Dun, 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 dun. The Adventure of the Radical Candidate. Oh, yes. Obviously. Yes, he meets the anarchists, I think. Sure. Why, why not? I'm an anarchist radical candidate. Well, that's got, I just thought in my head. That's <laughs> like, got Hamilton. Oh, Hamilton. Oh, yeah, do you know what I mean? New, I hear a new uh, jingle coming on. Are you going <laughs> to do the rap version of the 39 Steps there, David? Yes, yes, please. Mm. We've got to the station where we have established a bit of a habit. We've got to have a, a Cox original per book, I haven't soon. we? At some point. Mm. Definitely. I will do it next week. You get I'm thinking. Not, you get thinking. Um, yeah. Well, I, I, well, like you know how much I, planning I put into it. Sure. Absolutely. I know. You, yeah. Hours and hours. No pressure. Can Can you like, by the end of the book, and I've got like a forty-piece orchestra. Yeah. <laughs> like... A full video of you at Abbey Road, like recording. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Cost me ten grand. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Either that, yeah. or on, like, on our tenth anniversary, we go back and rec- and re-record and, and master all of the all of the tracks from every book at Abbey Road. That's what we should do. Yes, definitely, and put Live an album for my mum to buy. That's right. So today we're looking at chapter four. Last week, Richard Hannay got off the train in Scotland somewhere, decided to double back on himself because he thought, oh, they're going to think I'm just going further and further away from London. They won't think of me doubling back. But that wasn't correct. Apparently, the police have superpowers and the people in on the anarchist sides have a, have a biplane that's flying around the whole of the UK to find him. Apparently. So they're very, very good at finding this needle in this haystack. And so he decided to jump off the train, but the dog grabbed him and he made a big, massive scene of it. And so everybody's probably got knows exactly where he is now because of the scene he made. And then he ended up coming across an innkeeper who he told his story to, who was writing a novel. And the men who were in the plane who were searching for him, I believe, knocked on the inn looking for him. And in the end, they arranged a sting operation for them with the police, didn't he? Where he got them to basically say, right, he's going to be back tomorrow. Come back tomorrow. Get the police in. Yeah. And... Uh, as the police and the two men were kind of standing off, he's run off and nicked their car. Nicked the motor. Bit of a random end to the chapter, really. He just thought, sure. oh, yeah, it's a good idea. I think it was a very kind of impromptu, kind of, as most crimes probably are, to be honest. They're, they're, it's the chance, isn't it? Oh, well, it was there and I nicked it. I still think, I still think he would have been fine just like just walking around for a bit. I know we're saying he's like an amateur at it, but I think he should have known that just sort of sticking by and maybe like buying a tent and going yeah. to Isle of Skye. <laughs> Living in a tree. I suppose there's the double-edged sword. He doesn't just have to hide. He has to stop this thing happening. So yeah, it's I true. guess we Probably can't just back. sit there yeah. and go and like everything. He's kind of got to do some sort of surveillance as well. Yeah. He's got to keep, he's got so to keep his, that's why he keeps reading the newspaper. He's got to keep his ear to yeah. the ground. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and obviously he's still trying to decipher the cipher in Scudder's book, which he has managed now. So hopefully we kind of start to learn what it says in that book and start to see some kind of plan form on how he's going to stop this assassination plot ultimately. Sure. So he finished off, the, that's what I forgot to say, he finished off the chapter having found the keyword and is now beginning oh, yes, to decipher the whole mm. book. Yeah. So hopefully this chapter will get some answers. We might get some answers as to all the full extent of what Scudder knows, some inklings of a plan on Richard Hannay's part, maybe also something more about the Greek guy actually coming to the UK. Maybe some plans might be formalized there as well. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued. Let's, let's dive in. Let's see, see where this takes us. Yeah. All right. Chapter four, the adventure of the radical candidate. You may picture me driving that 40 horsepower car for all she was worth over the crisp moor roads on that shining May morning, glancing back at first over my shoulder and looking anxiously to the next turning, then driving with a vague eye just wide enough awake to keep on the highway. For I was thinking desperately of what I had found in Scudder's pocket book. The little man had told me a pack of lies all his yarns about the Balkans and the Jew anarchists and the Foreign Office Conference were eyewash, and so was Caroline's. And yet not quite, as you shall hear. I had staked everything on my belief in his story, and had been let down. Here was his book, telling me a different tale, and instead of being once bitten twice shy, I believed it absolutely. I'm wondering if it's like... You know, and it just it repeats it, and it's just going like, "Oh my god, I can't believe he's buying it. He's such an idiot. <laughs> How can he believe this nonsense?" What a moron! Him? <laughs> yeah. No, on the next page, there's going to be a postcard of him in like Antigua or something. Yeah. Just, just, <laughs> like, no, he didn't turn to the right page. Yeah. <laughs> he's not even dead. With he's all his own death. Yeah. With all of the swag from Hannay's apartment, like next to him on the beach, like his chair and his like chest of drawers. <laughs> so it's all a load of poppycock, is it? No yeah, well, like, yeah. There's no assassination. But he's saying that there's still a plot of some sort. But it makes sense, though, because remember, he was looking in the newspaper about Caroline's and nothing was in there. No one oh. was saying he's coming. So, And you think Point. how long like travelling would have taken in this time. Sure. A state visit normally is planned months and months in advance. Yeah. So it makes sense. Why? I don't know. It rang desperately true. And the first yarn, if you understand me, had been in a queer way true also in spirit. The 15th day of June was going to be a day of destiny, a bigger destiny than the killing of Dago. It was so big that I didn't blame Scudder for keeping me out of the game and wanting to play a lone hand. That, I'm pretty clear, was his intention. He had told me something which sounded big enough, but the real thing was so immortally big that he, the man who had found it out, wanted it all for himself. I didn't blame him. It was risks, after all, that he was chiefly greedy about. The whole story was in the notes, with gaps, you understand, which he would have filled up from his memory. He stuck down his authorities, too, and had an odd trick of giving them all a numerical value and then striking a balance, 
which stood for the reliability of each stage in the yarn. The four names he had printed were authorities, and there was a man, Ducrosny, who got five out of a possible five, and another fellow, Amersfoort, who got three. The bare bones of the tale were all that was in the book. These, and one queer phrase which occurred half a dozen times inside brackets. Thirty-nine steps was the phrase. They said the title of the thing. So yeah. it's nice to know that 39 Steps is like a thing. It's a thing. It's not just plucked Probably up. just yeah. some random title, yeah. I always thought it was physical steps. Did you think it was steps as in like stairs or steps as in Steps process? of the plan, maybe? I don't know. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. To me, to me, 39 Steps was more like the process rather than like a physical staircase. 39 Steps was the phrase. And at its last time of use, it ran 39 Steps. I counted them. High tide, 10.17pm. I could make nothing of that. That sounds like it I is mean, physical steps. Because he's like, be. I counted them, and it was high tide. Did they come out the sea? don't know. Keep going. Atomic kit we're playing. <laughs> <laughs> the tide is high. The tide is high. <laughs> Technically, it's not them. Yeah, exactly. I love how you went for the cover. He's trying to show oh, his age. It's I'm the bangles slightly young. Um, Isn't it the bangles? Yeah. Yeah, it probably is. is. I'm going to get slandered by a listener. <laughs> the first thing I learned was that it was no question of preventing a war. That was coming, as sure as Christmas. Had been arranged, said Scudder, ever since February 1912. Carolides was going to be the occasion. He was booked all right and was to hand in his cheques on June 14th, two weeks and four days from that May morning. I gathered from Scudder's notes that nothing on earth could prevent that. His talk of a pirate guards that would skin their own grandmothers was all bilio. The second thing was that this war was going to come as a mighty surprise to Britain. Carolide's death would set the Balkans by the ears, and then Vienna would chip in with an ultimatum. Russia wouldn't like that, and there would be high words. But Berlin would play the peacekeeper and pour oil on the waters, till suddenly she would find a good cause for a quarrel, pick it up, and in five hours let fly at us. That was the idea, and a pretty good one, too. Honey and fair speeches, and then a stroke in the dark. While we were talking about the goodwill and good intentions of Germany, our coast would be silently ringed with mines, and submarines would be waiting for every battleship. But all this depended on a third thing, which was due to happen on June 15th. I would never have grasped this if I hadn't once happened to meet a French staff officer coming back from West Africa, who had told me a lot of things. One was that, in spite of all the nonsense talked in Parliament, there was a real working alliance between France and Britain, and that the two general staffs met every now and then and made plans for joint action in case of war. Well, in June, a very great swell was coming over from Paris, and he was going to get nothing less than a statement of the disposition of the British home fleet on mobilisation. At least I gathered it was something like that, anyhow. It was something uncommonly important. 
But on the 15th day of June, there were to be others in London, others at whom I could only guess. Scudder was content to call them collectively the Black Stone. They represented not our allies, but our deadly foes, and the information destined for France was to be diverted to their pockets. And it was to be used, remember, used a week or two later, with great guns and swift torpedoes, suddenly in the darkness of a summer night. This was the story I had been deciphering in a back room of a country inn, overlooking a cabbage garden. This was the story that hummed in my brain as I swung in the big touring car from glen to glen. So he's kind of giving you a lot in terms of like, this is going to happen, then this is going to happen, then this is going to happen. But nothing really kind of says why. Well, he was talking about the anarchists. So I I think he's putting it down. But there isn't really like a why right now, is there? We've not been given the political why, no. I'm assuming apart from like the old joker, some men just want to watch the world burn. Like that seems to be the only motivation right now, right? Sure, yeah. Or wanting the world powers to destroy each other unless politically at the time it would have been assumed that there was sort of underlying conflict that felt like it was a bit of a you know a pressure cooker it's like if someone went back to franz ferdinand being assassinated and then all the events that followed which Mm. were happenstance for one of a better words no there is Mm. not a better word that ruled um (laughs) great word and then oh then and then and then that set them against them and then that was and and it's the chain reaction it's like Which, that butterfly I guess, effect. Forecast, yeah, it could forecast an effect. But like, there are specific things. Well, then, because it might be, well, Russia might not intervene, or it might be that mm. Berlin don't therefore do that. So it's quite sort of presumptuous. But sit there and go, this is fact. So yes, don't rise to the prime minister because he'd probably go, what? I guess this is basically like if they did it now and it was an action film, they'd be like, this terrorist group wants to kill so and so because he has the code that will set off all the nuclear bombs at the same time. Because that's one of them. But that didn't exist in those times. The only thing that was truly like world-defying would be, again, a set of circumstances that set everyone else against each other. But narratively, so. I'm almost immediately thinking, well, that's not going to happen. Because yeah. why would you give us that, that information so early in a novel? You know, so I'm thinking either that's not right either. Because, like, yeah, I just feel like why would you, why would you lay out the plan that ultimately is the plot of your novel so so early you know and so clearly yeah also the the whole assassination thing on the 15th was kind of more exciting to me yeah this is slightly less uh exciting than the original plan the cavalides story was a yarn maybe this is as well maybe scudder was just an impulsive liar who just was behind on his rent and just liked moving in with people (laughs) 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 just to put it out there he's already faked his death once since Hanay's known him. So uh, yeah. there's no reason why yeah. just putting it out there. Imagine if like he goes in to a room and it's these guys that have been chasing him and he goes, and he tells them the whole thing. And then you just hear, I was just thinking that this close clap. You the whole thing. Yeah. Mr. Hannay, thank you so much. But now it's the last day of your life. Have you got any last words? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> but why, Scudder? Why? Theatre, darling. Theatre. Uh. <laughs> you know when you've been overexposed to film 
reading this in Edwardian slash early Georgian, the I'm not going to get that specific. Um, England, it's been like, whoa, that's crazy. Can you imagine if that happened? And your imagination mm-hmm. is better. And we're just going like, yeah. nah, because like uh, you know Armageddon and and you know Inception and yeah, come back yeah. to the 19, <laughs> come back to the early 19, or the late 1910s with me, and then uh, yeah. we should we should only listen to this slash Josh read it with the mind of a a person in the early 20th century. That's it. Yeah. So everything's going to be like, <gasps> easily impressed. Easily mm-hmm. impressed is the MS. Well, right. I mean, I was going to mention when he's like, 40 brake horsepower car. I was like, <laughs> 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 that's like, what, a KA? <laughs> yeah. Uh, not even. I don't think even that's even It's a moped, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. My parents' lawnmower's got that. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's like a skateboard, but you know. (laughs) My first impulse had been to write a letter to the Prime Minister, but a little reflection convinced me that that would be useless. Who would believe my tale? I must show a sign, some token in proof, and heaven knew what that could be. Above all, I must keep going myself, ready to act when things got riper, and that was going to be no light job with the police of the British Isles in full cry after me and the watchers of the Black Stone running silently and swiftly on my trail. I had no very clear purpose in my journey, but I steered east by the sun, for I remembered from the map that if I went north I would come into a region of coal pits and industrial towns, Presently I was down from the moorlands and traversing the broad how of a river. For miles I ran alongside a park wall, and in a break of the trees I saw a great castle. I swung through little old thatched villages, and over peaceful lowland streams, and past gardens blazing with hawthorn and yellow laburnum. The land was so deep in peace that I could scarcely believe that somewhere behind me were those who sought my life, ay, and that in a month's time, unless I had the almightiest of luck, these round country faces would be pinched and staring, and men would be lying dead in English fields. About midday I entered a long straggling village, and had a mind to stop and eat. Halfway down was the post office, and on the steps of it stood the postmistress and a policeman, hard at work, conning a telegram. When they saw me, they wakened up, and the policeman advanced with raised hand, and cried on me to stop. I nearly was fool enough to obey. Then it flashed upon me that the wire had to do with me, that my friends at the inn had come to an understanding and were united in desiring to see more of me, and that it had been easy enough for them to wire the description of me and the car to thirty villages through which I might pass. I released the brakes just in time. As it was, the policeman made a claw at the hood, and only dropped off when he got my left in his eye. (laughs) I saw that main roads were no place for me, and turned into the byways. It wasn't an easy job without a map, for there was the risk of getting onto a farm road and ending in a duck pond or a stable yard, and I couldn't afford that kind of delay. I began to see what an ass I had been to steal the car. The big green brute would be the safest kind of clue to me over the breadth of Scotland. 
If I left it and took to my feet, it would be discovered in an hour or two, and I would get no start in the race. The immediate thing to do was to get to the loneliest roads. These I soon found when I struck up a tributary of the big river, and got into a glen with steep hills all about me, and a corkscrew road at the end which climbed over a pass. Here I met nobody, but it was taking me too far north, so I slewed east along a bad track, and finally struck a big double-line railway. Away below me I saw another broadish valley, and it occurred to me that if I crossed it, I might find some remote inn to pass the night. The evening was now drawing in, and I was furiously hungry, for I had eaten nothing since breakfast except a couple of buns I had bought from the baker's cart. Just then I heard a noise in the sky, and lo and behold, there was that infernal aeroplane, flying low, about a dozen miles to the south, and rapidly coming towards me. I had the sense to remember that on a bare moor I was at the aeroplane's mercy, and that my only chance was to get to the leafy cover of the valley. Down the hill I went like blue lightning, screwing my head round, whenever I dared, to watch that damned flying machine. Soon I was on a road between hedges, and dipping to the deep-cut glen of a stream. Then came a bit of thick wood, where I slackened speed. Suddenly, on my left, I heard the hoot of another car, and realised to my horror that I was almost up on a couple of gate-posts through which a private road debouched on the highway. My horn gave an agonised roar, but it was too late. I clapped on my brakes, but my impetus was too great, and there before me a car was sliding athwart my course. In a second, there would have been the deuce of a wreck. I did the only thing possible and ran slap into the hedge on the right, trusting to find something soft beyond. But there I was mistaken. My car slithered through the hedge like butter, and then gave a sickening plunge forward. I saw what was coming, leapt on the seat and would have jumped out, but a branch of hawthorn got me in the chest, lifted me up and held me, while a ton or two of expensive metal slipped below me, bucked and pitched and then dropped with an almighty smash fifty feet to the bed of the stream. Slowly that thorn let me go. I subsided first on the hedge, and then very gently on the bower of nettles. As I scrambled to my feet, a hand took me by the arm, and a sympathetic and badly scared voice asked me if I were hurt. I found myself looking at a tall young man, in goggles and a leather ulster, who kept on blessing his soul and whinnying apologies. For myself, once I got my wind back, I was rather glad than otherwise. This was one way of getting rid of the car. My blame, sir, I answered him. It's lucky that I did not add homicide to my follies. That's the end of my Scotch motor tour, but it might have been the end of my life. He plucked out a watch and studied it. There we get the voice of Mr. Goggles. Can we, like, add poo-poo at the end of every line? So you going to go like Toady? A, I want him to be, like, a Scottish version of Toad from Toad Hall. Can he be a Scottish version? 
a Scottish toad. Yeah, what what you know, like toad from Toad. What's his voice traditionally? He's like he's like a heightened RP. RP. It's sort of very frightfully frightfully, isn't it? In that in that book, yeah. everyone. But can you give him? Because obviously we're meant to be in Scotland. Could you give it like that kind of cadence and that kind of pitch, yeah. but with the poop right. poop in the end? And add a poop poop. Okay. Yeah. Very nice. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he loves cars. He just wants to be one. Yeah, or, or a little... <laughs> <laughs> any kind of car additions, cleaning his yeah, desk. lots yeah. of different noises. Being yeah, wow, what I've got to think. Okay, creative. Fine. He plucked out a watch and studied it. You're the right sort of fellow. Poop, poop. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! <laughs> <laughs> I can spare a quarter of an hour, and my house is two minutes off. <laughs> <laughs> don't know what I'm do- I don't know what I'm doing. It was windscreen wipers. I liked it. I'll see you clothed and fed and snug in bed. <laughs> <laughs> Different type of horn. He's got some, like motor Tourette's. Like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can do it at the end of like the speech rather than That's easier. every sentence. I'll do that. Sorry. You've, you've had a, <laughs> you'll you've you'll had run out of them otherwise. I yeah. will. It can't be different every time. Oh, my word. No, okay. you're going to have to repeat some. It's fine. Okay, yeah. Where's your kit, by the way? Is it in the barn along by the car? Meep, meep. <laughs> it's, it's in my pocket, I said, brandishing a toothbrush. I'm a colonial and travel light. A colonial? Meep. He cried. By God, you're the very man I have been praying for. Isn't this how Remix to Ignition goes? Can I get a poop, poop? Now I want that song remixed with someone being Toad from Toad Hall. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Doing that dance of that chorus. That's come on, listeners. Come on, please. <laughs> come on, TikTok. Someone make it. Come on. <laughs> By God, you're the very man I've been praying for. Are you by any blessed chance a free trader? Boop, 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 boop. <laughs> I am, said I, without the foggiest notion of what he meant. He patted my shoulder and hurried me into his car. Three minutes later, we drew up before a comfortable-looking shooting box set among pine trees, and he ushered me indoors. He took me first to a bedroom and flung half a dozen of his suits before me, for my own had been pretty well reduced to rags. I selected a loose blue serge, which differed most conspicuously from my former garments, and borrowed a linen collar. Then he hauled me to the dining room where the remnants of a meal stood on the table and announced that I had just five minutes to feed. You can take a snack in your pocket and we'll have supper when we get back. Poop, poop. I've got to be (laughs) at the Masonic Hall at eight o'clock or my agent will comb my hair. <laughs> I had a cup of coffee and some cold ham while he yawned away on the hearth rug. You'll find me in the juice of a mess, mister. By the way, you haven't told me your name. Twisden, any relation of old Tommy Twisden of the 60th? Poop, poop. No? 
Well, you see, I'm a liberal candidate for this part of the world, and I had a meeting on tonight at Brattleburn. That's my chief town, and an infernal Tory stronghold. <laughs> I've got the colonial ex-premier follow, Crumpleton, coming to speak for me tonight, and had the thing tremendously build, and the whole place ground-baited. Poop, poop. This afternoon, I had a wire from the ruffian saying that he'd got influenza at Blackpool, and here I am left to do the whole thing myself. Poop. I had meant to speak for 10 minutes and must now go on for 40, and though I've been racking my brains for three hours to think of something, I simply cannot last the course. Beep. Now, you've got to be a good chap and help me. Poop, poop. You're a free trader and can tell our people what a washout protection is in the colonies. Poop. All you fellows have the gift of the gab. I wish to heaven I had it. I'll be forevermore in your debt. I had very few notions about free trade one way or the other, but I saw no other chance to get what I wanted. My young gentleman was far too absorbed in his own difficulties to think how odd it was to ask a stranger who had just missed death by an ace and had lost a 1,000 guinea car to address a meeting for him on the spur of the moment. <laughs> this is like an episode of Miranda. Yeah. You know what I mean? Where like, you know, she ends up driving a forklift or like... Or randomly working at the gym. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's just like, yeah. what on earth is going on? This is why you don't just agree to things. Are you a free child? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm one of those. Because you can get asked to do things. Yeah, yeah. You can see why this book was ripe for farce when there's already farce in Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. But my necessities did not allow me to contemplate oddness or to pick and choose my supports. All right. I said, I'm not much good as a speaker, but I'll tell them a bit about Australia. <laughs> you blatantly just picked the furthest place away and went, where's the place that they're least likely to have been? Yeah. Australia, I'm going to talk about there and just make it up. At my words, the cares of the ages slipped from his shoulders and he was rapturous in his thanks. He lent me a big driving coat and never troubled to ask why I had started on a motor tour without possessing an ulster, and as we slipped down the dusty roads, poured into my ears the simple facts of his history. He was an orphan, and his uncle had brought him up. I've forgotten the uncle's name, but he was in the cabinet, and you can read his speeches in the papers. He'd gone round the world after leaving Cambridge, and then, being short of a job, his uncle had advised politics. I gathered that he had no preference in parties. Good chaps in both, poop poop, he said cheerfully. <laughs> and plenty of blighters too. I'm, I'm a liberal because my family have always been Whigs. <clears throat> but if it was lukewarm politically, he had strong views on other things. He found out I knew a bit about horses and jawed away about the Derby entries and he was full of plans for improving his shooting. Altogether, a very clean, decent, callow young man. As we passed through a little town, two policemen signalled us to stop and flashed their lanterns on us. Oh, and then one of the policemen speaks. Just because he says Harry, could we have yeah. him as Hagrid? Oh, someone's peeping ahead. But yes, I can do Hagrid. Yeah, I just saw Harry and was like, oh, I want a Harry Potter voice in there. Okay. Beg pardon, Sir Harry, said one. 
We've got instructions to look out for a car, and the description's not unlike yours. Righto, poop poop, said my host, while I thanked Providence for the devious ways I had been brought to safety. After that, he spoke no more, for his mind began to labour heavily with his coming speech. His lips kept muttering, his eye wandered, and I began to prepare myself for a second catastrophe. I tried to think of something to say myself, but my mind was dry as a stone. The next thing I knew, we had drawn up outside a door in the street, and were being welcomed by some noisy gentlemen with rosettes. The hall had about five hundred in it, women mostly, a lot of bald heads, and a dozen or two young men. The chairman, a weaselly minister with a reddish nose, lamented Crumpleton's absence, soliloquised on his influenza, and gave me a certificate as a trusted leader of Australian thought. <laughs> this is great. There were two policemen at the door, and I hoped they took note of that testimonial. Then Sir Harry started. I never heard anything like it. He didn't begin to know how to talk. He had about a bushel of notes from which he read, and when he let go of them, he fell into one prolonged stutter. Every now and then, he remembered a phrase he had learned by heart, straightened his back, and gave it off like Henry Irving, and the next moment he was bent double, crooning over his papers. It was the most appalling rot, too. He talked about the German menace, and said it was all a Tory invention to cheat the poor of their rights and keep back the great flood of social reform. Here, that- here, here. but that organised labour realised this and laughed the Tories to scorn. He was all for reducing our navy as a proof of our good faith and then sending Germany an ultimatum, telling her to do the same or we would knock her into a cocked hat. He said that but for the Tories, Germany and Britain would be fellow workers in peace and reform. I thought of the little black book in my pocket, a giddy lot Scudder's friends cared for peace and reform. Yet, in a queer way, I liked the speech. You could see the niceness of the chap shining out behind the muck with which he had been spoon-fed. Also, it took a load off my mind. I mightn't be much of an orator, but I was a thousand percent better than Sir Harry. I didn't get on so badly when it came to my turn. I simply told them all I could remember about Australia— praying there should be no Australian there, all about its Labour Party and emigration and universal service. I doubt if I remembered to mention free trade, but I said there were no Tories in Australia, only Labour and Liberals. That fetched a cheer, and I woke them up a bit when I started in to tell them the kind of glorious business I thought could be made out of the empire if we really put our backs into it. I'm glad they listed what he actually talked about because when he was like, I just simply told them everything I can remember about Australia, I honestly thought he was just going to be talking about kangaroos and Kylie Minogue and koala bears <laughs> <Yeah>. and <laughs> didgeridoos. And yeah, yeah. That's yeah. not a knife. <laughs> Steve <laughs> Irwin. Like, what, what else do you talk about? <laughs> the flat white coffee. <laughs> like, the flat <laughs> white. I love how that's made the list. If you had to speak as an expert, like in a doctor at university lecture on a topic you haven't studied what do you think you could blag and get away with so i'm going to leave that question with you now you can think about it for the rest of the episode i'll get the answer at the end altogether i fancy i was rather a success 
The minister didn't like me, though, and when he proposed a vote of thanks, spoke of Sir Harry's speech as statesmanlike, and mine as having the eloquence of an immigration agent. When we were in the car again, my host was in wild spirits at having got his job over. A rapping speech, Twesden. Poop, poop, he said. Now, you're coming home with me. I'm all alone, and if you'll stop a day or two, I'll show you some very decent fishing. We had a hot supper, and I wanted it pretty badly, and then drank grog in a big, cheery smoking room with a crackling wood fire. I thought the time had come for me to put my cards on the table. I saw by this man's eye that he was the kind you can trust. Listen, Sir Harry, I said, I've something pretty important to say to you. You're a good fellow, and I'm going to be frank. Where on earth did you get that poisonous rubbish you talk tonight? His face fell. Was it as bad as that? Poop, poop? He asked. <laughs> he asked ruefully. Uh, it did sound rather thin. I got most of it out of the progressive magazine and pamphlets that that agent chap of mine keeps sending me. <coughs> but you surely don't think that Germany would ever go to war with us? <laughs> <laughs> Ask that question in six weeks, and it won't need an answer, I said. If you'll give me your attention for half an hour, I'm going to tell you a story. I can see yet that bright room with the deer's heads and the old prints on the walls, Sir Harry standing restlessly on the stone curb of the hearth, and myself lying back in an armchair speaking. I seem to be another person standing aside and listening to my own voice, and judging carefully the reliability of my tale. It was the first time I had ever told anyone the exact truth, so far as I understood it, and it did me no end of good, for it straightened out the thing in my own mind. I blinked, no detail. He heard all about Scudder, and the milkman, and the notebook, and my doings in Galloway, Presently, he got very excited and walked up and down the hearthrug. So you see, I concluded, you've got here in your house the man that is wanted for the Portland Place murder. Your duty is to send your car for the police and give me up. I don't think I'll get very far. There'll be an accident and I'll have a knife in my ribs an hour or so after the arrest. Nevertheless, it's your duty as a law-abiding citizen. Perhaps in a month's time you'll be sorry, but you'll have no cause to think of that. He was looking at me with bright, steady eyes. What was your job in Rhodesia, Mr. Harney? <laughs> he asked. Mining engineer, I said. I've made my pile cleanly, and I've had a good time in the making of it. Not a profession that weakens the nerves, is it? Poop, poop. I laughed. Oh, as to that, my nerves are good enough. I took down a hunting knife from a stand on the wall and did the old Mashona trick of tossing it and catching it in my lips. That wants a pretty steady heart. He watched me with a smile. I don't want proofs. I may be an ass on the platform, but I can size up a man. Poop, poop. You're no murderer and you're no fool. And I believe you are speaking the truth. I'm going to back you up. 
Now what can I do? Bleep. First, I want you to write a letter to your uncle. I've got to get in touch with the government people sometime before the 15th of June. He pulled his moustache. That won't help you, poop poop. This is foreign office business and my uncle would have nothing to do with it. Besides, you'll never convince him. No, I'll go one better. I'll write to the permanent secretary at the foreign office. He's my godfather and one of the best going. What do you want? I don't know what that one was. That was just a weird... Uh, it kind of turned into like clown noises. I'm kind of yeah. for it. I don't mind. I don't, I'm not, well, I'm not in, I think in this time, the car horn would have been a little... Yeah, it would have been the, yeah, the, the thing. You know? Yeah. Don't know. He sat down at the table and wrote to my dictation. The gist of it was that if a man called Twisden, I thought I'd better stick to that name, turned up before June the 15th, he was to entreat him kindly. He said Twisden would prove his bona fides by passing the word Black Stone and whistling Annie Laurie. Good, said Sir Harry. That's the proper style, poop poop. By the way, you'll find my godfather, his name's Sir Walter Bullivant, down at his country cottage in Whitsuntide. It's close to Artenswill on the Kennet. That's done. Now, what's the next thing? Poop poop. You're about my height. Lend me the oldest tweed suit you've got. Anything will do, so long as the colour is the opposite of the clothes I destroyed this afternoon. Then show me a map of the neighbourhood and explain to me the lie of the land. Lastly, if the police come seeking me, just show them the car in the glen. If the other lot turn up, tell them I caught the South Express after your meeting. He did, or promised to do all these things, I shaved off the remnants of my moustache and got inside an ancient suit of what I believe is called heather mixture. The map gave me some notion of my whereabouts and told me the two things I wanted to know, where the main railway to the south could be joined and what were the wildest districts near at hand. At two o'clock he wakened me from my slumbers in the smoking-room armchair and led me blinking into the dark starry night an old bicycle was found in a tool shed and handed over to me. First turn to the right up by the long furwood. Beep, beep, he enjoined. By daybreak, you'll be well into the hills. Then I should pitch the machine into a bog and take to the moors on foot. You can put in a week among the shepherds and be as safe as if you were in New Guinea. I pedalled diligently up steep roads of hill gravel till the skies grew pale with morning. As the mists cleared before the sun, I found myself in a wide green world with glens falling on every side and a faraway blue horizon. Here, at any rate, I could get early news of my enemies. End of chapter. Ooh. Away again. So he's literally just gone out into the wilderness, kind of Bear grill style with just a new tweed suit in Heather Mix. So what's that? A lovely purpley pink tweed suit. He's living amongst the shepherds and the sheep and he's just making his way across the moor. I mean, has he even packed a lunch? Has he packed anything? 
He might have a couple of sandwiches, maybe. I don't know. He travels very light. I'll give him that. What an adventure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we don't like see the bits where he has to like poo in a hole and like, eat a carrot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, That's not very becoming of the era. Not very yeah, good. no. And he's like accidentally squatted in stinging nettles or something. That chapter definitely, as we said before, kind of highlighted how this has been turned into a, a farce by some people because it did have some humorous, farcical moments in it with obviously the speech and him being roped in to be. And also just the fact that like so far it's sort of followed the structure of there being a guest, like a, like almost like a guest star in each chapter. So it's him and somebody else. And then, and then that person is never seen or heard of again. No. Unless they have like a big old meeting at the end. Oh gosh. Yeah. (laughs) Could you imagine? It's a big room. It's like a big boardroom and they're all sat around. Well, what I was imagining was like a Richard Hannay, this is your life. You know, <laughs> yeah. show, and it's like, do you remember yeah. that innkeeper who who quoted Shakespeare? Here he is! Uh, oh my god, I can't believe <laughs> it! I've not seen you in ages, so many years. And then they lock them all up for obstructing justice or helping, aiding and abetting a wanted yeah. criminal. <laughs> they just get all get led off to jail at the end of it. It was all a ruse just to get them all in one place so they could arrest them. Yeah. But it was quite, um, it was quite serendipitous that. He happened upon someone that had some political clout that could actually help yes. him somewhere. But I guess that had to happen. So, oh no, there was a car accident. Who are you? I happen to be in politics, not just some. Yeah, uh, yeah but my then, godfather's yes, in the foreign office. Yeah. But then, who else is going to have a car? I suppose. We yeah, no, that's true. You you have to be quite well off in this time to have a car. I did love the bit where he's like, "Oh, I'm glad he didn't notice that I was improperly dressed for driving a car. I didn't have my Ulster on." And it's like people in this time like could see us drive cars now, and you see people like no shirt on, like people driving around flip flops, floor (laughs) tracksuit, women with their feet on the dashboard, like oh, they'd turn in their grave, wouldn't they, if they knew what was going on in cars nowadays? Mm. So we still don't really know what he's going to do in terms of fixing this plan because it seems like what Scudder has written in his book is kind of like. You know, this will lead to this, will lead to this, will lead to this, and it's unavoidable and it's going to happen. So, is it the case that he's wanting to get to the Foreign Office to warn them so that Britain isn't taken by great surprise, like it said it was in the book? Or is he trying to stop these small incremental kind of events from happening? Like, what would you think? I feel like he, know, he thinks that any whatever he says, they won't believe him. So, he's got to stop. Yeah. Them. Um, which is actually quite accurate because no one's going to believe some like imagine he comes in like he's still got like some marsh in his head and like there's a bit of seaweed <laughs> you've got to stop it you've got to stop it oh, the guy what? he's going to be uh, uh, uh. yeah he'd be marched out there yeah but I'm I'm still trying to work out what the, the event at the start he needs to stop is because if the Caroline's thing wasn't true and is a bluff like what was the first step again in that whole dialogue thing about what will happen it was like Germany will throw oil on the water and then we'll do the a dirty on the sly and then Britain yeah. will get taken by surprise because there'll be submarines in the water and they won't I know guess they're there it's, it's and... basically as I said it's, it's basically similar sort of things it said the Balkans and Austria and then yeah, it seems pretty accurate. It's obviously Germany would seem like they're doing all the right things, and then all of a sudden they would we'll turn on everyone. Okay. It's, not like, yeah. it's not like it's not like the authors like done dysto- like done it dystopian and done it in like America with like Mexico and Canada. So you can kind of make up alliances 
They're yeah. all pretty much. It's just the only one. He's was, basically just written what how the first world war started. He's not reinventing the wheel. He's kept it fairly close, I think. Yeah. Right. Okay. Fair enough. Because in fact, like you know, James Bond obviously it, it usually does. It there's a it sort of um, it goes in parallel to like Cold War and terrorism and things like that. So I guess you know we, we can't rip it off too much because it's a pretty safe thing to do because otherwise people mm. go that's unbelievable you know uh burundi would never be in the war with colombia i don't know to talk, talk yeah. to a random company but also it, it's kind of the intrigue is as you say is the average londoner being thrown into such a vast conspiracy and being the only person who can save the world like that's what makes the story interesting rather than the fact that it's a rehashing of something they already know has happened yeah. And how it happened, you know, it, it's the what would average Joe do if it was their responsibility to try and stop World War One from happening? They so do an that's... hour-long speech at a rally. Is what <laughs> yeah, <doing>. about Australia. <laughs> <laughs> it's like just a minute, but just an hour. It was like, well, <laughs> having brought up the speech, what would you guys speak on if you had to go into a university and like? Someone thought you were a professor of something that you know nothing, you know, you're not really trained about. What what would you be able to blag like an hour's kind of lecture on? Loads. I'm not anywhere being close to an expert, but yet I kind of am because I've been wearing them my whole life. <laughs> I, I imagine like doing that in terms of judging stuff. If the, you go to the people's right, design something for an hour and then you just sit there and go, hmm, yes, no, over it. Don't like that. Don't like that. Don't like that. Detracting if you, from the if you made up, If you made up a persona. Yeah, it's true. You could get yes. away with that. I would probably do mine on like knitting or crochet. I could probably talk at length for an hour. You basically are a professional at that. But I never trained in it or like did any of it. Do you know what I mean? Like oh, and I if haven't that's like... the, if that's because if I've trained it, if it was something I trained, it would be politics, or if it's something I do for a living, it would be theatre. Oh, okay. Well, if, or singing. If it's, okay, if it's something that I've never. Oh, you been can be. You can be. It can be something you're good at. Yeah, it doesn't. It's just saying it's something you haven't formally trained in that you go right. You'd have to blag an hour and talk about it. Oh, it okay. could be a TV show. It could be anything. Oh well, in which case, if that almost changes the question, a book series. Well, in which case you could, I could talk forever about Harry Potter. I could talk forever <laughs> about Friends. I could talk forever about coffee. I could talk forever about loads of stuff. Right. Okay. Well, you're obviously a very well-read general knowledge kind I'm of not, person. I'm the kid who, in school, when we had to keep our reading log, um, every time I finished Harry Potter, I was uh, my teacher said, "Okay, now read something new." And so I'd have to pick some other book and I'd read a chapter of it. And then they'd get, next time they came around to check my reading log, I'd written, don't like this book. I'm going to read Harry Potter again. It's not as I'd good as Harry Potter. And I used to, used to read it on a loop and then you'd see like chapter one of another book. And then I'd just read the same book again. <laughs> <laughs> you know what you like. You know what you like. And I like I, I'm that book. same person. Like my wife goes on at me all the time for watching the same TV shows. I'm like, yeah, but I know what happens and I know I like it. Uh, so why yeah. would I watch something new? There's, t- there's time and a place for new stuff. Sometimes if it's just like comfort of an evening, you want to watch yeah. something you already know. I, I, I saw a thing basically saying apparently people who read or, or watch things over and over and over again, they've seen a million times before. This isn't the case of me, but often people who suffer from anxiety because they can't deal with change or something new, so they like the familiar and the and the safe. 
Well, it's. I think it's it's the preconception you think. What if I don't like this? Or yeah. within five minutes, you're like, oh, I'm really having to think. Mm. It's like, the unpredictable, it's sort of, isn't it? See, yeah. My thing's less to do with anxiety and more to do with attention span. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. if I'm watching something new, I'm going to have to actually invest it and watch it. And half the time, I put something on because I'm on my phone <laughs> and yeah. it's just on in the background, and I don't want to have to concentrate. Here's on it. the rub with me. I. I literally cannot split my focus. So even if I'm watching the same episode of Friends or Parks and Recreation that I've seen 20 times, if it's on, I have to be watching it and I have to, shh, I would literally, I can't really? have anything else going on because otherwise I would just turn it off. If, I'm, if I've, I've got something else to do, I have to have quiet. So I literally can't, I can only focus on one thing. So even on the 20th watch, I'm still watching attentively. See, I'm the one who's like got the TV on and I'm on TikTok and I'm trying to knit something. <laughs> uh, yeah. Matt the human. And I'm like, why don't I have enough hands? I need another <laughs> hand. Oh dear. Anyway, we need anyway, to get down to our next section, Josh. Guess what the next chapter's called? Before you dive in, I just want to say that this one in 2021, I guess, uh, has a... <laughs> Almost reads differently than it would have done at the time because there's a use of a word that has changed since. Uh, what, that COVID. makes me almost, that makes me also <laughs> COVID. Yeah, Corona. It, al- it also it makes was me a beer. Al- now it's a death sentence. <laughs> yeah, it almost makes me want to read the chapter title in a certain accent, but that, oh. I'll leave that out for you. Then. Just as a clue for both me and David, does it start the adventure of? It does. So it does. We okay, that, we'll call that a given, shall we? Right. Okay. The adventure of. The fake news machine. <laughs> okay, I see what you're doing there. Yeah, it's not right, but okay. <laughs> the adventure of the strong and stable man. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you've gone. You've gone so uh, 2021 that actually, uh, yeah, yeah, no, again, not like correct. 18, I reckon. Okay, yeah, uh, but in the last five years. Uh, mm-hmm. This particular term has certainly taken on new significance as far as I'm aware. And I'll read it in the accent that I really feel like it deserves reading it today. Chapter five is called The Adventure of the Spectacled Roadman. <laughs> Roadman. <laughs> but I think it, it really it should be read The Adventure of the Spectacled Roadman. I'm very, very much looking forward to finding out what a roadman in 19... 19- what? What was it? Nineteen fifteen, nineteen ten, nineteen twelve? Were we around there? Nineteen eleven? Somewhere around there, aren't we? The first, so, yeah. yeah. 12, what what that looks like in nineteen? Like yeah. Man, but yeah, they're like. They, like I mean, they, we've already got our accent now. If he speaks, we know exactly how oh, yeah, he's talking. Up. He's a road. Okay, there we go. Roadman voice is ready, ready to go. Oven Good ready. Year. Oven Adventures ready. Adventures of Brexit. So if you've got any thoughts or opinions on this chapter, you can message us on thelazybookclub at gmail.com. Uh, or if you've got any topics that you think you'd be able to speak for an hour about at length, but <laughs> you don't necessarily know about, you can talk about it for less than an hour on Twitter at lazybookclubpod. Sure. Or using the video format, you might just be able to uh, video yourself on time lapse speaking for an hour and then post the, you know, the condensed version on Instagram at Lazy Book Club Pod. We are also on Patreon, where for the very low fee of $3 a month, you get an extra episode a month and you also get to watch these videos 
complete with Josh doing his car animations as well as uh, noises. There was a few hand gestures to go with the windshield wipers and the car horns, which were very, very fun to watch. Otherwise, we will see you next week for Chapter 5, The Adventure of the something Spectacled Roadman. Spectacled Roadman. So we'll see you next week for that. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye.